Hey, you rockin' Rockyites, welcome to episode 10 of season 1, which has 10 episodes total, which means, you guessed it, this is Sad Face, the last episode for this first inaugural season of the Rocky Mountain National Podcast. So, first of all, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in, whether that was one episode or multiple episodes. Hopefully you became a subscriber if you are into it in whatever podcast app you like to use. If not, consider doing that. Um, Some stuff you can do while we're on a hiatus for the winter. We may have some bonus episodes in the winter, but we're going to be on a hiatus overall. Here's some things you can do. If you like the podcast... First of all, if you go to iTunes and give us reviews, that helps us show up higher in search rankings. It helps us spread the news about Rocky and uh, reach more people. So think about that. Another great way is to just tell people that are your friends that you think you might be into our podcast. Uh, Just let them know, hey, this is kind of cool. Check it out. Or maybe you'll listen to an episode together. I'm also going to go out on a big limb here and give you my email address so that you can send us any comments, positive Uh, critical, negative, whatever. And more importantly, you can give us ideas for things that you are interested in hearing about for next season. We are going to start on pre-production after a little bit of a break here. So we're going to start thinking about it, planning it out for, uh, for next season. And, um, you know, we're open to, to any great ideas that you have. So send them my way. My email address is miles underscore C underscore barger that is b as in boy a r g as in girl e r miles underscore c underscore barger at nps.gov send us your comments send us your ideas just send us a hey thank you from wherever you're from we enjoy listening whatever kind of notes you want to drop uh go ahead and send them there and uh we will read as many of them as we can so Let's finish this season up with an episode about Long's Peak. Today, um, we're joining Everett Phillips, who is a Long's Peak climbing ranger. We're going to talk about what being a climbing ranger involves, why we have climbing rangers at Rocky. Um, We're going to talk about how Everett became a climbing ranger. And then we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about Long's Peak, specifically the keyhole route. Everett's job this summer and last summer has focused, as you'll hear in the episode, on doing what we call preventative search and rescue, or PSAR, on Long's Peak, specifically the Keyhole Route, to help have people have a better time, help keep them safe, and help prevent search and rescues from happening before they ever happen. So, super interesting episode, uh, obviously a huge topic here at the park. And we hope that you find it enjoyable, fascinating, and if you are thinking about climbing Long's Peak, very useful. Here we go. All right, let's get started. We're here... uh... Uh, we don't need to say where we are because we're in my office. It's boring. <laughs> a lot of times we've recorded outside, but we're not recording at 13,000 feet. Yeah, being in an office is novel for me, though. It's oh, exciting. that's true. It's exciting to me. All right, we're in a novel environment here in an office in the indoors. <laughs> um, Going to do an interview. So, 
if you could tell us your name and your title here at the park. So I'm Everett Phillips, and I'm one of the climbing rangers on the East District in Rocky Mountain National Park. East District, so the, the Estes side. Yeah. So climbing ranger, we haven't talked about climbing rangers yet on the podcast, so maybe we can do a little overview of that program before we dig into what you specifically do. So how many climbing staff are there here in the park? There's eight. Eight. Uh, two of us are here year-round, and I'm one of the six who are here seasonally, so from May until uh, the end of October in my case. Um, and our role, uh, it's Rocky Mountain National Park, so it's rocky, and we have a lot of spectacular mountain terrain here. And that train is inaccessible in part for many visitors and many employees because of its uh, precipitous nature. So uh, we have a visitor use group, mountain climbers, that access that terrain for recreation. And uh, when they get in trouble um, or perhaps when they impact the resource, uh, the park has to become involved with that terrain, either to go rescue them or to maybe make regulations. A great example would be if a cliff is closed for nesting raptors, um, you need some people who could get up there to tell people to leave that terrain or uh, to post signs. Gotcha. So basically we have as anyone who's been to the park knows, a lot of steep terrain, right. especially on this side of the park, but on both sides of the park, a lot of steep terrain. And we have people who like to climb it. And so we need people who know what they're doing to get up there and help them out and talk to them. And and also to know the community, right? And to know the concerns and to know all those sorts of stuff. Things. Yeah, that, that definitely uh, is part of the job. Um, when I first began... Uh, working with the park service, I was on the rescue team in Yosemite and we were volunteers and kind of having your fingers on the pulse of the climbing community helps in doing the job. All right. So you're a climbing ranger. What is your position specifically? Well, I was hired two years ago, mostly to focus on uh, Long's Peak Mm -hmm. Um, and specifically to focus on the keyhole route, which is probably our most popular mountain climbing uh, adventure in the park. Uh, almost 10,000 people come out here every year just to try Long's Peak. Um, and the climbing route's accessible sort of people with advanced hiking skills, but it's not just hiking, it's mountain climbing. And uh, so... The park definitely, at the very least, has a duty to inform people of the hazards that they face going up there, and definitely we do quite a few rescues related to the Keyhole Route. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I'm here to talk to people about what they're getting into, um, be available to answer questions when I'm out on the mountain, and then be where I put myself in a good position to respond for rescues on the right. upper mountain, especially. Right. So as much as you have a typical day, <laughs> what is your, what does your typical day look like to paint the picture for, for listeners? Cause well, it's pretty, it's even to me, someone who works in the park, it's pretty cool. 
the, so. <laughs> the foundation of my job is having an intimate understanding of the mountain, uh, which requires going up there regularly because conditions change so often and uh, the experience and uh, the hazards are completely dependent on those conditions. So my bread and butter day is to show up for work uh, sometime before 7 a.m. and get a pack together and go start up from the Longs Peak Trailhead towards the summit using the keyhole route and uh, be available to talk to people along the way. Uh, sometimes you end up going all the way to the summit because it's a nice day and conditions are in your favor and uh, you don't get sidetracked by uh, some other project or a rescue or something of that nature. And then maybe descend a different way. Um, Clark's Arrow is another good route that you can do alone as a climbing ranger. Um, but that allows you to do a few things. One is get our safety message across to the visitors who are actually climbing the mountain. Um, the other thing is I can take photos of the route to post on our conditions blog, and that helps people understand whether it's icy or whether the rock's dry, what sort of equipment they might need to bring. That's, that's really what I should, should be doing at least two or two days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Sounds all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure people out there are thinking like, what you get to climb Long's peak for your, for your job. That's crazy. I know we can get into, uh, we, we will get into the details of, of why it's also a challenging job. Um, how long have you been climbing? How long have you been a climber? Uh, I've been leading rock climbs, um, placing my own gear and building my own anchors for just over 10 years. 10 years? Yeah. Where are you from originally? Uh, I'm from New York, Westchester County, New York. New York. Yeah. Westchester is New York City, kind of? Yeah, it's the bedroom, bedroom community. Bedroom community? Half an hour to an hour north of New York City on the Hudson. Oh, okay. Uh, that area. Was there a climbing community around there when you were growing up? Uh, I think in my experience, there's a climbing community just about everywhere. Oh, nice. Um, but <laughs> the closest rock climbing uh, destination is are the Shangunks, or the Gunks, as oh, most yeah. people know them. Yep. I haven't been there, but yeah, and I think I've heard that term. That's actually the first place that I roped up and went climbing. The um, Gunks? Yeah, where the climbs had a name. I was already scrambling around cliffs and stuff in my backyard and a few boulders that i could yeah try to summit yeah how did you get i like how did you get into it Were like were you always kind of scrambling around as a kid and into stuff like that or did you have a friend or family member that inspired you or a movie or or what i did have a friend a friend of mine uh his name was josh garrison we were uh soccer players on the same on the same soccer team but he got into outward bound he was an instructor there and he's been involved in outdoor recreation and i think you know to get into climbing that is more adventurous for you it's helpful to have a partner to hold the other end of the rope and i think i got recruited to hold the other end of the rope <laughs> and uh i guess in some ways he opened that world to me so it was All right. fortunate um thanks to him yeah 
So he kind of got you started on it. And what kept you going? Like when you started, what was the what was the appeal? What what drew you in? I think I really like the responsibility that comes with climbing. Mm. Uh, you know, as a young man, I didn't have a lot of responsibility, and I think I was trying to grow up. And the great thing for me about climbing is that once you're involved in the activity of it, once you've launched, you're you're out there leading up a cliff. Uh, you are ultimately responsible for everything that happens to you. Um, and there's no time for anyone else to save you. There's no time for, you know, if you leave the lights on in your car when you park it, someone will come and help you jump it. But if you make a, a mistake when you're leading a rock climb, then you're going to face the consequences of your mistakes. And I think as a young man, that was an appealing uh, challenge. Mm. So the, um, well, I guess responsibility, yeah, the way you put it, just that that immediate visceral challenge yeah I drew think you in, in. A, in a sense climbing's quixotic you know you're uh you get to the top of the cliff and you just come back down and you haven't there's no real material change in your life but uh in another sense it's it's a, as serious as as business gets you you have to do things the right way mm-hmm. otherwise over time uh, there are going to be really bad consequences. And, mm-hmm. um, so, you, you know, you're you're trying to do your best. Right. It demands your best. So were you climbing through college? Did you go to college? Uh, yeah, I did go to college. And were you climbing it during that time? Uh, actually, I spent a lot of time climbing on boulders, but it was mostly for fun. Okay. I did rope up a few times, but it wasn't a focus for me. Uh, it, was, it wasn't until I graduated college and... I worked on a trail crew in New Hampshire um, and got out in the mountains a lot and saw a lot of cliffs that captured my imagination and go back and with a partner and go climbing on the weekends. Oh, nice. What was the trail crew with? Uh, it was the Appalachian Mountain Club's trail oh, crew. yeah. Um, they do, yeah. They do amazing stuff. That's one thing when I was on the, because I've spent a lot of time out west, but uh-huh. I went back to the east coast. I was just amazed at the, the level of organization and dedication to, to trail maintenance. It was and, a really uh, unique place to work on. The Appalachian Mountain Club's trail crew is, uh, mostly young people, and it it turns over. People usually do about four or five years with that trail crew, mm-hmm. um, but the trails there go straight up the mountain. Which, if you do a lot of trail work, you know that that's really bad planning um because the erosion just turns the trails into big drainage ditches so you build a lot of rock staircases out there and yeah it was a great place to learn tough work yeah yeah the trails (laughs) the trails there are crazy yeah yeah i hadn't been up there and then when i when i lived near dc we would take trips sometimes up to the northeast for for a little more as close as we could get to alpine and we would just i mean whoo just straight up, straight up on boulders. It was also a great place to break into climbing um, because you have, there's really great rock climbing. It's the Granite State, um, but there's also good ice climbing in the winters. And it's got uh, an alpine zone just because of how harsh the winters are. And so there's this alpine tundra and you can do a little bit of 
uh, Arctic mountaineering. Um, so you can, you can train for the Alaska range there. You can train for Patagonia there. You can train for Colorado there. Right. It's gnarly. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a lot gnarlier than I realized it was before I'd first yeah. gone there. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Especially the winters. Yeah, they're, they're, they're hardcore. So you were up there doing the trail work, seeing stuff you wanted to climb, climbing it, doing some ice climbing at that time? Yeah, I was. Yeah. I, I was passionate about ice climbing at that time. Nice. So where where did you go after that? Where so, did life lead you? <laughs> uh, it led me to Yosemite Valley. Yosemite. Um, Is there climbing there? Or? <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> yeah, it's not, a, it's not uh, an original story for a climber. but That's uh, all right. I was really, again, really fortunate. Um, I left New Hampshire because I was hired as part of the Yosemite Valley SAR site program. SAR is? Search and rescue. Um, And the SAR site is basically uh, a a campground within the climbers campground uh, in Yosemite where they give free housing in wall tents to uh, eight volunteers Mm. Uh, and the deal is that four of you at the time anyway i don't know if the contracts changed but at the time four out of the eight of us were available 24 hours a day seven days a week to help the park with rescues but we had no other time commitments except for maybe five or six days of training at the beginning of the season and one day a month after that so there was the idea was you went climbing all the time and then they had uh, fit and well-trained rescuers that would respond to their pager when a rescue was needed. That sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was that? What was that like? How long did you do that? I did that for four summers. Yeah. So it was, it was a six-month season. It was May first, October thirty-first, and uh, it's still. I mean, this program still goes on, and they they do incredible rescues. Um, Man, you must have learned a ton there. Yeah, and you know. Uh, they, they do a good job these days of bringing in people who are just getting passionate and are developing skills. And, uh, I was fortunate to be in that position I, you know, I was at kind of one level with my mountaineering and my rescue experience when I started in Yosemite and I was in a completely different level of experience when I left. I bet. Yeah. That's, that's like the place right? <laughs> it's, a one pla- of. it's a place. It's one of. Sometimes uh, people come out of Yosemite, you know, really beating their chests about uh, what they can do. And um, I definitely fell prey to that, I think. But uh, it's, it is a really great place to learn how to move, especially in, you know, on, on Alpine walls, big walls, mm-hmm. um, because the weather's really stable and uh, the rock's really clean in most cases and so you can you know what would have taken you all day uh before you start climbing in yosemite becomes you know something you can get done in 15 or 20 minutes wow when you leave you know that's pretty amazing <laughs> yeah i think when i got to yosemite three pitches was a full day for me and by the time i left yosemite 30 pitches was a full day wow yeah factor of 10 <laughs> right nice I mean that's pretty cool that you were that you were able to to get all that experience, but also be helping people um, helping people out, and that's a cool. That's a with the park service. Yeah, it yeah. was with the park service. How long has that been going on? Do you know? 
Well, is it established uh, or? Yeah. So Yosemite search and rescue has a really interesting history. Uh, Royal Robbins and Warren Harding uh, were putting up roots and doing in the heyday of their climbing. The park service didn't have anyone who would go anywhere near the places that they were going. Um, and from time to time, those guys and their uh, contemporaries needed rescues. So what the park service was doing was going down to the climbers campground to round up the climbers to go do the rescue. And, that makes sense. They're like, you know, so uh, the we're parks, not going to do this, but uh, the, can you guys help us yeah, out? Yeah, <laughs> so the park service would provide the logistics right. and the climbers would would do the rescue itself. Um, and so you can see the evolution there, which is that um, the park nowadays, the probably the leaders of the team and the most capable rescuers are park rangers. Um, and they're helped out. For, for manpower um, and and skills and understanding of the routes um, by the SAR site. They also have climbing rangers in Yosemite as well, too, uh, just like they have here. And mm -hmm. uh, so they have park rangers who are professionally accessing that terrain all the time. So it started out uh, organically, and uh, now it's kind of become part of the institution there. Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. To me, I'm not I'm not a climber, so it's fun to learn yeah. about all this stuff. So you would do that in the summer. What would you do in the winter? I've been a ski patroller for the last nine winters, um, which I, for anyone who's interested in uh, work in the mountains, you know, doing adventure sports like skiing or climbing, and also for anyone who's interested in rescue work, um, I think ski patrolling is the best. It's it's the most fun. It gives you the best experience. Yeah. Where where did you do ski patrol stuff? Started in New Hampshire mm -hmm. when I was on that trail crew. I worked at a little ski resort called Atatash and did a ton of medical stuff. You know, the slopes are icy. The train parks are big <laughs> because the snow is not great. Um, and so just running sleds and splinting broken bones. Were you an EMT then? I was an EMT before I started that. I did a wilderness okay. EMT. That's what got me my job on the trail oh, crew. Cool. And that's what and got would... me my job as a ski patroller. So that's I something it... that I've wanted to do, wilderness EMT. Yeah, I've done well, the woofer, and I, I was like, oh, man. I would recommend the wilderness EMT class to anybody. Um, you know, it's been a great investment for me, but also it's, it's just really interesting. And I think that if you spend a lot of time taking risks – you know, whether you're skiing or hiking or climbing, um, you know, I think the wilderness CMT is just great education for what to do if something bad happens. But I think it also convinces you that something bad can't, will happen at some point, you know? Yeah. I had that experience in my wilderness first responder for sure. And I was just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> just makes you much more aware of, of what can happen and also how, um, hard it can be to, really help someone or get help even if you're not quote that far from a trailhead unquote is a it can be a long way yeah it, it continues to amaze me how challenging mountain rescue is mm. you know, i think every time i think i have it down or that uh i'm super capable then uh there's a rescue that surprises me ends up being more challenging than than i expected um it's definitely not short on challenges. Yeah, I mean, I, I was amazed just how 
hard it is to carry someone in a litter. Like yeah. it's exhausting. And yeah. just how many people it takes because you have to rotate out. You just get, I mean, if you have the, the manpower to do it or the person power to do it, you have to rotate out. Yeah. It's ex- it just wears you out. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes people, when they think about mountain rescue, it, it seems glamorous. And, you know, you can see photographs of rescuers hanging from beneath helicopters in front of these amazing mountain faces. But the truth of the matter is 95% of mountain rescue is the litter, which is a titanium or steel basket that someone lies down in. Um, you know, hopefully they have some good padding underneath them and a sleeping bag around them and a good splint and maybe some pain medication while they're mm-hmm. taking the ride. But that sits on top of uh, an ATV wheel that has a welded frame that attaches to the bottom of the litter. And that kind of, uh, in the best case scenario, <laughs> rolls gently down the trail. But, uh-huh. uh if it's a long litter carry out or people are tired, then sometimes it bumps down the trail. But that's the, you know, if if you're committed to this business you, in the right way, I think you'll probably do more of that than anything else and take pride in it. Right. Yeah, and I, I really, when I did my class, I really appreciated the instructors being really like, like focus on your patient, focus on your patient comfort, focus on, you know, minimizing their pain and doing further injury and like keeping that focus, even if it's hard, even if you're tired, even if it's cold, you know, whatever, which I, I mean, it makes sense, of course, but yeah. you know, it was really, um, I just never thought about it in that way. It really changed my perspective in a good way. I think about like, you need to work really hard to, to help this person be not, not just get them out, but like help them be as comfortable and keep their dignity and, you know, all these things yeah. as possible. I think that's one of the things I really enjoy working here at Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, and not that this doesn't happen other places, but we have a really great uh, medical staff here uh, on our mountain rescue team. And we're really committed to to making sure that every single patient that we take care of is, is getting the best care we can possibly give them. And, um, we do a lot of these wheel outs and, uh, you know, we have great paramedics here, uh, that do pain management along the way and give fluids and, um, yeah, this, it's a great team in that respect. So when, so you were there, you were in Yosemite for four years doing that in the summers, you were doing ski patrolling in the winters, starting in New Hampshire and then other places. Yeah. Uh, and I then, worked in Washington briefly, and, okay. um, not briefly, for four years, and worked in California for two years as a ski patroller. So when did you come to Rocky? Uh, two years ago. So was there something in between Yosemite yeah, and worked, Rocky? Yeah, I worked for a year at Mount Rainier National Park. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, a little bit different? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Rainier is great because uh, it's got the biggest glaciers in the lower 48, and I didn't have a ton of experience on glaciers there and coming from climbing on El Cap to walking on these huge glaciers is a big transition. Yeah. And uh, it was probably not a long enough uh, tenure to, you know, become an expert in that terrain, but definitely was good to round me out as a climber. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Being on glaciers is like, amazing and incredibly frightening yeah (laughs) all at the same time absolutely (laughs) yeah i was uh i worked in alaska for a while and people people get a certain amount of comfort 
with glaciers or at least the lower end of glaciers because they're mm-hmm. around and they, and just, just when that happens, someone will have an accident or you, or you'll just see something happen where you're like, I, I know one of, our, <laughs> one of the first times I went out on a glacier with someone and you know, there's just a huge crevasse opening and they're just like, throw a, throw a rock down there. Yeah. Threw a rock down there and they're like, here when it hits the bottom, never heard it hit the bottom. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, okay. Cause you have this illusion there, but there's a lot of dirty glaciers yeah. where you have kind of a lot of moraine on top of ice. And so you almost don't realize you're on a glacier sometimes. And then you'll come to a spot like that. And they, yeah. so it was basically just someone trying to wake me up to like, Hey, this is a moving living thing. Yeah. Don't get comfortable. <laughs> no, I think that was one of the things that surprised me. Uh, I was excited to work at Mount Rainier because I, I think needed a little bit of break from, from El Cap. And, mm. um, but I definitely would have trouble sleeping the night before climbing the upper part of Mount Rainier there. I have a bunch of friends who are guides, Mount Rainier and friends who are climbing rangers there. And, um, there are a lot of them that, that do that, you know, have done it 400 times even. Um, but I think it's really serious and, <laughs> I think they're aware of that. They may just be braver than me. Yeah, and then glacier. I mean, there's. A, I mean, of course, and we'll talk more about this as we get into this. Mm-hmm. So, I'll fill in podcast listeners. Everett and I this summer have been working on a video project, and so we've gone up on Long Speak a couple times together and talked about some of this stuff. So, I definitely want to bring it out. Is that that idea of risk and and um, risk that you can mitigate and risk that you have to accept and all those kinds of, of things like that. So we'll, we'll get into that more, but, um, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely some pretty big objective (laughs) hazards with, uh, with glaciers. Yeah. With any, with any, any climbing type of endeavor. So you were there for a year. All right. Well, I, it was another seasonal job. So I was there from April until September, I guess. And then after that, you came here to Rocky? Yeah. And when was that? That was last? That was two years ago. Two years ago. Actually, my supervisor in Mount Rainier is a guy named uh, Van Roberts. Is I I guess you move around this business a little bit by the partnerships that you form. Um, And I think meeting Van was really, really good. And we both decided he'd worked at Rocky Mountain previously and we both decided we'd go back to Rocky together. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you had a friend when you came? <laughs> yeah, I did. He, That's he great. brought me back with him. Nice. So you came here two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, man, so much stuff. Okay, so I guess first we'll start with Rocky compared to Yosemite, compared to Rainier. What's the kind of, as a as a climber and as a climbing ranger or rescuer what what really sets it a rocky apart or defines rocky in your mind uh well i think what de- defines rocky is alpine rock climbing you know in, in terms of my job so mm-hmm. the you know if you had to pick one skill that the climbing rangers here have is that they're comfortable uh as alpine rock climbers um there are three of them put up a an incredible route on Fitzroy in Patagonia. They called it the Colorado route. Um, that was uh, Max Barler and Mike Lukens and Quinn Brett, who are fellow climbing rangers here. And that that kind of epitomizes the the skill that you, you should have to do this job. 
Um, so a comfort in high altitude right. so, environment. Yeah, so alpine alpine rock climbing, um, the best way to describe it is that the, the activity is still rock climbing, but you have a really long day. Um, it's probably at high altitude here in the park. Most of our alpine rock climbs are between uh, 11,000 and 14,000 feet or 10,500 and 14,000 feet. So you're, you're, you're contending with the altitude. Uh, there'll be a, you know, something between a four mile and a six mile walk to get to the base of it. Um, then you got to do that at the end of the day. And then, uh, the rock quality is always something that you have to assess for yourself. It's, um, oftentimes the rock quality is poorer up on the Alpine than it is at, at a, at a crag in the, in the valley. What makes rock quality poor? Well, to a certain extent, it's the rock type. Uh, to a certain extent, it's the way it weathers, the direction it faces in relations to storms and the wind, and whether it's in a corner where water seeps or whether it's out on a dry face where the wind keeps it. So clean. is it like how prone it is to, 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 fall, to fall off and, and then the mo- break I off? Think, you know, for, for me, the most important part is how secure the protection is. So in really good quality, compact granite, um, you can fully trust the the pieces of equipment that you put in the rock as you climb past it. But um, in poor quality rock, they they may be worth nothing to you. So Mm. um, you have to be, uh, I think in the Alpine, you have to have a better eye for your placements, but you also have to be uh, sure-footed and careful because falling is not always an option. Um, So then going back to Yosemite, you know, Yosemite, the, it's rock climbing, you know, that, that's, it, it's sunny, it, the weather's good, but the climbing's really, really hard, and, uh, really, really intimidating, and so you're just focusing on your rock climbing, really, and then, uh, in Rainier, it's, uh, you know, glacier mountaineering, which has its own challenges, and, mm-hmm. um, like we talked about before, there's a, a lot of objective hazard, you know, avalanches, crevasses, ice fall, Mm-hmm. right and so here that that the defining thing is the alpine yeah. and those long approaches and all, and then weather too right yeah um, certainly here we have super exposed thunderstorms yeah. are a big a big deal during prime climbing season um this summer it seemed like they were almost rolling in every single day and they were you know really really uh intense lightning storms yeah we had some a few quite a few weeks in a row of really intense weather i yeah. felt like yeah so you came here started last year what was your first so were you long speak specific last year too yeah right? it was um so what was your was that the first time when's the first time you went up long speak had you done it before yeah it was uh may 20th last year may 20th last year um <laughs> what was it like it was great uh it was early season so the there was snow at the trailhead. So what we did was we climbed or we, we did the approach. We climbed up to the keyhole on our skis. Mm. We, you know, you have climbing skins on your skis and, uh, we skied up to the base of the route, which is about six miles in. And then we climbed the keyhole in crampons with ice axes. And it was a mountaineering experience. We were mostly w- walking on steep snow slopes, 
um, kind of assessing the the snow stability and plunging the ice axe every step. And uh, it was a great way to get introduced to the mountain because, you know, those conditions can exist almost any time of year. And you need to be really, you need to be really aware of that. Uh, so that kind of planted in my mind that Long's Peak was a real mountain and that I had to take it seriously. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's one. Yeah. That's one thing I was wondering about is like how it struck you the first time, um, you know, your first time up. I mean, that's so, so we'll get into longs and all that right. stuff. So, you know, most people are, the majority of, of people are trying to climb in that little window in the summer when they aren't dealing with those kind of conditions. Yeah. But it's a short window because that's May 20th and it's full on, like you said, skiing up, crampons, ice axes, snow slopes, May 20th. Yeah. So, um, so clearly it hit you as like, this is a serious mountain. And what was your kind of general feel for the whole thing? Cause you'd been on a lot of mountains by then. Well, I think I was really excited for a couple reasons. First of all, the, the guy I did it with um, was Mitch Musi, who's was the other ranger hired the same year to be focused on Long's Peak. And uh, so we've done a lot of work on the mountain together and a lot of rescue work together now. And uh, that was his first time climbing Long's Peak as a climbing ranger. And so I think I could tell at that point he was someone who was really excited about doing this job. And and doing it as well as he could. And it's great to have that trust in someone that you're going out in the mountains with. And so that was going really well. And I mentioned that we skied all the way up to the keyhole. Well, we also skied all the way down from the keyhole to the parking <laughs> lot. And it took us about 20 minutes. Whoa. And it was really fun. So, um, yeah, I think my impression was that there was a lot of room for me to grow and a lot of good adventures to be had. And um, that, I, you know, found myself in a good situation nice so let's talk about long's peak let's talk about the keyhole let's talk about all that stuff okay how's that sound great so long's peak fourteen thousand two five nine. is that right yeah right so it is a it's a tall mountain yeah it is the only 14 in rocky mountain national park that's right it is as a geography geek who used to make maps, I'm excited about this. It is the farthest north 14,000-foot peak in the Rocky Mountains. Hmm. There are no 14ers farther north than Long's, which is kind of cool. Um, really weird-shaped mountain, I think. It's really like an amazing-looking mountain with that big block on top and like this flat summit. and Yeah, interesting-looking, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's, and it's it's just a weird coincidence to me that like the tallest mountain in the park is also the craziest looking mountain in the park in some ways <laughs> or most yeah. unusual and the the other thing about that is that it has kind of all these different ramps and crack systems and chimneys and there are you know six or seven good ways to end up on the summit and just as many ways to to bail off of the summit mm-hmm uh, so it, it's a mountain that takes a long time to know. I, mm. I still, you know, after two seasons, I still wouldn't say that I know it very well. Um, that's interesting. That's very interesting to me. Um, so it's drawn people for a long time. Of course, a famous early mountain guide who's pretty connected to Rocky, Enos Mills. Yeah. I mean, you had people who spent their whole life basically guiding people up and down and getting to know this one mountain to me that i think that's one of the most fascinating parts of my job or mm. aspects of my job is that enos mills is, is such a role in 
founding the park Mm -hmm. and uh he you know as a guide he he made his living off of long's peak and uh so much of his writing is about experiences on long's peak and so i feel uh, as a park ranger it's it's great to be able to focus on long's peak of this park i think i get you know close to the spirit of the of the place i feel like that when i'm up there yeah yeah there's just something about it so many people have have uh invested themselves uh either for one climb or or for their whole life you know there's just a certain a certain something about it um it beckons to people all throughout the front range at least in northern part because you can see it from a real long way away and it is very recognizable um, and so, like you were saying, ten thousand a year now we're up to about. Yeah, it's the. I mean, it's a rough number we throw out there. Yeah, yeah, so it's calling out to you know ten thousand ish people a year to to try and give it a go. So that's kind of the general the general outlier um, or general outlay of the of the thing. So there's like you said, there's lots of routes up, um, which involve depending on your skill level, technical climbing and protection even ropes things like that but the the thing that really attracts the general public right is the keyhole out correct yes yes so um it's inescapable it's inescapable (laughs) (laughs) so let's talk about the keyhole route let's just walk through it and and we'll stuff will come up about it so keyhole route you start at uh you start at the longs peak trailhead right where there's a parking lot and uh a a small ranger station uh, mm-hmm. where you can get information and buy purchase backcountry permits and bivouac permits. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's another three and a half miles from the parking lot to reach tree line. You wind in and out of the forest and mm-hmm. eventually come out uh, in a place called Jim's Grove. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. I went uh, up there for the first time this summer. Yeah. yeah. And when you come out there, it's just like, whoa. Right, and you get this incredible view of the East Face of Long's Peak, and uh, yeah, it's Mount gorgeous. Lady Washington's right there. But you can also, if you turn, if it's early in the morning, which for a lot of people when they're trying to climb Long's Peak, they start really early in the morning. Right. Yeah. What time? Idea. What time do people generally start? I mean, of course, it varies. But yeah, I, I think uh, for your average person, a, a two a.m. to a four a.m. starts pretty common. Um, yeah. If you think you're on the slow side, I meet people who have done a really good job of getting back early. You know, they're coming down the same time I am around noon and they tell me they started at 1230 or one. And I think, whoa, I was hard work for them to do that, but it paid off for them. Yeah. Yeah. I know when we were up there filming at what time was that? Like five or something. Yeah, we and we saw the... so many headlights coming up the trail yeah. and we were away, you know, we were quite a ways up the trail. So yeah, we they, had a, they started earlier. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So people are starting early they're headed up through the trees, standard hiking trail. Yeah, so you break out a tree line, and if it's if you're on time, you look out and you can see the lights of uh, the Front Range cities, Boulder and Denver. Yeah, which is super cool. Yeah, it is. It is cool. And uh, so then now you're above tree line, and the trail winds around Mount Lady Washington, um, mm-hmm. and that's another two and a half or three miles of hiking. Mm-hmm. And that puts you out in the boulder field. Okay. So you're at the boulder field. So from the trailhead to the boulder field is six miles? Six miles. Six. And yeah. How many feet of gain is it? Like The boulder field is uh, about 12,000 
between twelve thousand five hundred and twelve thousand eight hundred. That's, that's so you've the gained field. like three thirty five hundred feet. Or anything about this? So I'm mean, just going to round it up to thirteen thousand and uh, round the trailhead up to ten thousand five hundred. Okay. Oh, sorry, nine. nine excuse me, yeah. nine thousand five hundred, and uh, so that's thirty five hundred. Okay. So this is just to get to the boulder field. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty much. It's a trail. Right. It's safe to call it that. Yeah, I, know. I would it's, call it that from hiking. when I did it. It's hiking. So then you get to the boulder field. Um, you get, well, it's, the keyhole route is so named because of this break in uh, the northwest ridge along Longs Peak. Mm-hmm. And it, it looks like a keyhole. You know, it's pretty obvious. At least from the boulder field, it's pretty obvious. Right. Um, and the keyhole is at about 13,000. So you have to go up from the boulder field a little ways to reach the entrance to the route mm-hmm. which is right through that keyhole and what yeah. i found interesting there is that it it's a pretty i feel like it's a pretty nice smooth transition of difficulty i felt like yeah to let you know what you're getting into because like well i'm on a trail in the woods it's getting a little rockier now i'm on boulders now i'm boulder hopping now i'm starting to use my hands and get a little scrambly right it, yeah so you get a great uh feel for what the route is like after the keyhole mm-hmm. by the type of train you move through from the boulder field getting up to the keyhole. Yeah. And right as you're just making it into the keyhole, I like to tell people that that kind of scrambling to get to the keyhole itself, the last hundred feet up to the keyhole is what the rest of the hike to the summit is like. Yeah. I remember you mentioning that to me. And a half. So it gives, you know, I think for people who say to themselves, and I think this is a good uh, plan to have well, I'll make it to the keyhole and see how I feel remembering it that last 80 or 100 feet getting up to the keyhole is what you're in for for the next yeah mile and a half one way right right three miles round trip yeah ish you can look at it as that's it's a good setup because you progressively increase your difficulty but uh, it's also one of the traps of the keyhole route in Long's Peak that you don't really get your difficult climbing until you're really tired and you're at higher altitude. So mm-hmm. things start to compound in terms of difficulty the closer you get to the summit. Right. You've already been climbing. Your legs are getting tired. You're already, if you aren't acclimatized, especially the altitude is getting you. And you may, maybe some people fall into the, the mental trap that I've come all this way. I only have this much further to go. But in, in reality, that last mile and a half is going to take as long as the whole first bit. Right. Yeah. And so you get up to the keyhole, you get there. And I mean, when we got up there, that definitely took my breath away. You pop out through this and now you're just looking down into Glacier Gorge, like all of Glacier Gorge. right below you it's an incredible view just just the keyhole it's i've told people i've told people that who are like i will never i could never do longs i'm like well you should try to at least go to the keyhole just because it's if there were nothing else past that it would be a worthwhile stellar top five hike yeah in the park for sure and then on the opposite side of the boulder field you have chasm view where if you kind of walk up to the low point in the the ridge between the North Face of Long's Peak and Mount Lady, Wa- Mount Lady Washington, you have this incredible view down at Chasm Lake. Yeah, it's amazing. And you see the whole East Face of Long's Peak. And so that's another 
uh, reason to hike up to the boulder. Thought that was field. pretty breathtaking. Oh yeah. So you've made it to the keyhole. Let's say you're feeling okay. Right. You've got snacks. You got water. You're feeling okay about the last hundred feet that you just climbed up. How do we go from there? Or first, I should say, before we get to that, what what should people be going through in their mind when they're getting to this point about whether or not they should keep going that day, or whether or not they should feel proud of what they've done so far, call it good, and decide that they're going to come back and try it another time? Like, what are the checkpoints in your head for people who are thinking about doing it? Yeah, I think the the most important thing there is time and weather, mm. um, and so you need to make sure that the weather isn't deteriorating when you get to the keyhole because it may only, it's not only a mile and a half further to the summit, but that mile and a half is going to take you almost as long as the six miles it took you to get there. So you don't want to be starting that adventure when a storm is building. Uh, And that can be kind of, if you don't get a lot of opportunities to go up and try to climb Long's Peak, it's, it's hard to say to yourself, well, there's a 50% chance of thunderstorms after noon, and I already see some little white fluffy clouds that look innocent enough, but the wind's blowing them closer, and turn around right there for those reasons. Sure. But if you want to uh, be conservative about getting struck by lightning or climbing across a rock slab that you can't fall off of in a rainstorm, that's your last chance to make that decision. So you have to be aware of how much time you have left before that forecasted weather is coming, and you have to know enough about weather forecasts and what approaching weather looks like in the mountains to make a good decision there. And I think one thing that you talked about on the when we were going up that, that made a lot of sense to me is like kind of create set points for yourself maybe even ahead of time when you're, when you're more rational and you're not so pumped up and excited or maybe tired or whatever. And say like, you know, if I'm to this point by this time range, I'm okay here. Like just say like, if the weather looks like this and it's this time, but if you're an hour past your timeline or something, try to set that up ahead of time so that you can kind of try to keep your emotional desire to get the summit a little tamped down and to be like, Hey, you know what? It's actually better to not get struck by lightning and come back. (laughs) Yeah. That's, uh, you know, when, which is hard. Yeah. It's totally, I I, I get play tricks on us. Absolutely. We all know this. Um, so yeah, you kind of have to outthink yourself and outplan yourself. It's hard. Uh, and I think the other hard thing about it is that most people aren't going mountain climbing as much as, as I'm going mountain climbing. So for me, I have to really work on my system to give myself the best chance of being safe in the long term. Whereas there are a lot of people, I see it all the time, that come up to climb Long's Peak and make bad decisions and get to the summit and come back and they're fine. Sure. Um, And they don't don't get stuck with it. Um, But over the course of the summer, I see all the people who do that and I get to meet the four or five or the handful that I have to rescue. Um, so that's something just getting the summit, um, climbing the route doesn't always 
indicate success or mastery. You know, that's mm. that's something that's harder to find. Interesting. So you've made it to the keyhole. Let's say all those check marks that you've thought about oh, yeah. beforehand. You've done your research. You're good. You've got the weather's looking good. All that. Now we're getting into the real, the real meat of this of this climb. Yeah. Uh, Where do we go from there? Right. So the first, the the technical or more technical sections of the route, the, the sections where you're doing your, now it's a mountain climb. It's not just hiking anymore. It's mountain climbing. Right. That's a so, big message. Yeah. It's not a hike. That's my, that's not a my, hike. the one talking point I've really developed. Yeah. That's <laughs> a good one. To it. It's a good one. Uh, actually we used to grade the keyhole route as technical or non-technical mm. um, depending on the season and they'd hang a little plaque up there at the keyhole saying, no, the keyhole route is technical. It's closed all except for real serious mountaineers. And we don't do that anymore. Uh, I think it's because it can become technical again at almost any time of year. Certainly it's good to, for warm people that in the winter it's very likely to require advanced skills. Um, but at any time during the summer it, it can get to be the kind of uh, conditions that require a lot of experience and specialized equipment. Right. Um, but uh, we'll, we, there are names for all of the portions of the route beyond the keyhole. And the first portion of the route that you get to is called the ledges. And it doesn't gain any elevation. It crosses the backside of the mountain um, in going in between big rock slabs on a set on a series of ledges and that delivers you to the bottom of the trough, which is this huge rock chute or gully or couloir or whatever you want to call it. It's a trough mm -hmm. of uh, broken rock. that's not very steep and you can climb up it. And that often has snow, right? Yeah. That holds snow latest. It's the most North face. Like how, I mean, I, of course it varies every year, but well, it's going to have snow to a certain extent until July at least. At least. It's probably going to linger a bit longer. Uh, people start climbing it without specialized gear maybe earlier than that because you can find ways around the snow, but there's typically snow in the trough for quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually a good ski run. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that that has its own problems because uh, you know losing your footing on snow or hard snow in, in summer there, um, that's one of the places you it, it'd be easy to have a serious accident um so the trough is where you gain most of your elevation you just hike straight up this thing for a thousand vertical feet about and uh, when you get to the top of that you go move on to another aspect of the mountain so the west side of the mountain and there's this narrow ledge section uh section of ledge that takes you around to the southwest side of the mountain it's about I don't know, a football field long, and it's called the Narrows. And a lot of people think of that as the most dramatic and exciting part of the route because you do have a, a pretty big drop below you there and a cliff above you, and uh, it's you know only a foot or so wide at the narrowest part. Yep. <laughs> right. So yeah, <laughs> you keep you know once you've made your traverse of the Narrows. Uh, you wrap around a rocky shoulder and there's a, a ramp. It's a, a rock slab with a few cracks in it that 
goes up another 500 vertical feet or so. And we call that the home stretch because it puts you out on the summit, which is this flat plateau that, again, is about a football field wide. And then that's the route. And then you have to come all yeah. the way back down. Right. And, um, yeah, uh, as a non, as a non big on scrambling climbing person, it definitely mm-hmm. caught, caught, took my breath away when I started getting on, on even the beginning part of that. Um, and I could tell that it was having that effect on, on a lot of people. So, um, what, what are some things people can do before they are even thinking or making the plan to come up to just get a sense for, you know, whether, whether they're going to be comfortable enough with, with the route. I mean, of course you can't really know until you do it, but what are some resources? Well, I think when I started mountain climbing, I thought of it as a test of my physical strength and mm. endurance. And when it comes to that sort of scrambly train you were mentioning, I don't think that's a good way to think about it. Uh, climbing through what I'd refer to as third class and terrain, uh, which just means you're maybe using your hands for balance or to pull yourself up once in a while, but most of the time a fall isn't catastrophic. Although on the keyhole route, there's a few places where if you fall, uh, the best you can hope for is a trip to the hospital. Um, it's a skill. It's something you practice just like uh, playing an instrument or a sport mm-hmm. or anything like that. So you need to, if you want to be able to move confidently and quickly and I guess quickly is not the right word efficiently in that sort of terrain you just need to seek out terrain that's like that and practice and that's one of the things that uh, is a problem with the keyhole route is that that terrain is so remote on the route that people aren't getting to it and realizing that they're not well practiced um, until they're already really far away from the trailhead and uh the consequences are really high for even a, a twisted ankle. Mm-hmm. So the the key is really just to move around in boulder fields and steep mountain slopes, and mm-hmm. it's it's something that just comes with time. So kind of purposefully pushing your if you're like for me, I'm I'm a hiker, but I'm like a trail right. trail yeah. hiker for the most part. Yeah, and so purposefully finding maybe places where you can you can push yourself off of a nice maintained trail and start getting yeah. into more and more, um, scrambling terrain, boulder hopping, loose rock or, or just different types of footing, different. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, and just think about it like that. Like you said, just think about it. It's not, it's not a matter of how strong you are necessarily or your fortitude as a amazing person. It's just like anything else. Yeah. Like, would you expect someone to be able to just sit down and play the piano amazingly if they've never done it before. Right. No, you would think that they would want to build up to it. And I, I see a lot of really strong fit people fake it till they make it up there. Sure. And I I don't think that's a great approach because there's always this trade-off between uh, efficiency and security in the mountains, right? It, you know, getting on your hands and knees and crawling along a narrow ledge with a death grip around every rock around you you prob- you're not going to fall if you do that. But if it takes you an hour to go 100 feet, the storm's going to catch up with you. And mm. then it, the rock's going to get slick and wet. And 
you're never going to be able to make it down no matter how hard you grip the the handhold so there's a trade-off and if you find yourself uh really terrified and wearing a hole in the seat of your pants scooting down the whole thing rock slab then you know i think that can be avoided with four or five days of practice moving around in that sort of train so that you you get your sea legs right okay so practice on some non-maintained trail terrain to kind of get get a feel for that and find your comfort level and build your skills and then what's another another thing people can do to to up their their safety um if they're thinking about doing the route well again in the trade-off between efficiency and security i think that uh i see people underprepared in terms of equipment and i see people overprepared with equipment Mm -hmm. Uh, so you don't want to be up there on a stormy day in late August, early September, when you're starting to get the fall snowstorms in shorts and a t-shirt, because if you do roll your ankle and there's no one around, you're, you're at the mercy of the elements and you might freeze to death up there. Um, but at the same time, I, I see people with 50 pound backpacks carrying nine liters of water and they're moving along uh, precipitous and tenuous ledge systems where if they stumble, uh, they're going to take a really bad fall. And, uh, you know, if, if my life depended on moving carefully across a rocky ledge, I'd want to have as little weight on me as possible. So your pack's got to balance the need to have a little food and a little water and a raincoat, um, with not carrying so much weight that, you're sandbagging yourself for some really important climbing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And, and I feel like, you know, we can't, um, we, the park service or, or any, any land management agency, we can't tell you what to carry because it's always going to depend on you as an individual. It's going to depend on the actual conditions of that specific day. It's going to depend on all sorts of factors, but you and, and other staff do put out the conditions report, which right. gives you a feel. Um, you can go on our website and research uh, general weather for the time of year that you're thinking about. You can go on our website and get a forecast that is point specific to as close as we can get it to the summit of Long, or the upper part of, of Long's Peak. And you can use all that stuff. And then I think the other side of that equation that people need is that you need some experience in the mountains. Or, or doing outdoor stuff. Like, you you don't know how heavy a coat you need when it's yeah. 40 degrees until you know what you need. Yeah. And, and it's better to find that out in a lower-risk situation, I think. <laughs> well, that's the other thing about alpine climbing and just having fun in the mountains in general is that there's no right or wrong way to climb Long's Peak. There's no right or wrong season to climb Long's Peak in. Um, but it's only by mountain experience that you know whether your system and your plan is right for you. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just like you were saying, the more time you spend in the mountains, the better off you're going to be. Um, and uh, uh, that's practice makes perfect, right? Right. And so, so this kind of stuff that we're talking about and a lot of what you focus on your job is what we in the park service and not just the park service, I guess, call um 
course, we have an acronym for everything because yeah. we are the government. PSAR, which is Preventative Search and Rescue. Right. So that's, we're not giving this information out, like you said, to tell yeah. somebody yes or no, that's your personal call, it's your personal responsibility. We're just trying to give people the information to make the best decision they can yeah. for themselves. Um, and the reason we're trying to do that is to prevent search and rescue situations, right? Right. Right. So, um, uh, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to make it sound dire or anything, but what are some of the search and rescue situations that you and your, and your coworkers do get into and how does that motivate the preventative search and rescue side that is the focus of, of your particular position? Right. Um, I think all of us got into this work, got our jobs because we wanted to do rescues. Now, personally, I'd prefer to do PSAR. And so the way PSAR <clears throat> relates to search and rescue work is that um, you do everything you can to prepare and inform visitors about the risks they're taking and the hazards that they face. And that way, you have less accidents mm-hmm. to deal with. And at a park that gets as much visitation as Rocky does, that's critical because it's very easy to overwork a rescue team. Some of the rescues can take, you know, more than 24 hours. You have multiple shifts on the rescue. It's, you can wear out your people, you can break your equipment and physically and mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally, especially, um, you know, mountain rescue can be traumatic for rescuers. Um, you know, that, the sorts of injuries that you see and tend to and um, the reactions of people's loved ones when someone's hurt in the mountains, uh, it wears you down. So you try and manage that as best you can, and PSAR is one of the go-to strategies there. It can be as simple as having your trail signs be accurate and be in the right place um, uh, or as complicated as... uh, you know, tapping into social media networks to to advise people of changing conditions if there's just been an ice storm, and then trying to make people aware of what's what what they're gonna be dealing with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I just wanted people out there to know that that um, you know we have all these people like you on staff who know what they're doing to do rescues when we have to. But obviously, our goal is to have zero rescues needed yeah. per year. That's what we're always going to shoot for, right? Um, whether or not it's possible, that's always going to be always going to be the goal. Yeah, and just trying to, like you said, we're we're, you know, the park. Part of the reason that a park like Rocky is here is for people to challenge themselves in whatever way that means for them, and so we respect that. We just want to make sure that everyone is well informed and knows the decisions that they are making for themselves. Yeah. Because ultimately, you know, we've talked about this a lot. Um, your responsibility when you're out in the mountains is for yourself. Yeah. You know, you need to be responsible for yourself. That's part of what makes it um, um, adventurous and uh, rewarding. Um, like you were talking about at the beginning is what attracted you to it is that that right. that responsibility. And so, you know, we're here to, to help um, it when it's needed and if we can – and if it doesn't put up, you know, our staff in too much peril, um, but we want to try to keep that from happening <laughs> yeah. to anybody. I think that's uh, a fair way to put it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
So um, second season in Rocky, maybe you'll be back, maybe you won't. Who knows? It's a seasonal lifestyle. But Yeah, I don't, if there's anything that has come out in this podcast is I'm a bit nomadic. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we've, that's a pretty common theme on this podcast, and I think it's been interesting, I hope, for listeners um, to get a sense of that, um, how important that is in park service culture, um, sometimes as your whole career, sometimes different phases of your career. So yeah, that's definitely been a theme with lots of people um, that we've interviewed is that kind of nomadic, nomadic stuff. So maybe you'll be back to Rocky, maybe you won't, but uh, either way, this is something that we like to ask everybody maybe actually i'll give you two two questions um one just is specific to long so for you personally what is long's peak meant to you or what does it mean to you what is it meant in your in your life what are is there any like big lesson that you've taken away or any skill or or just what comes to mind is kind of the the big picture takeaway from longs well it's it's a mountain that i think gets its significance from humans um it it's just another spot on the, the ridge in rocky mountain national park it happens to be a few feet higher than the mountains next to it but people are really drawn to it and uh it's one of those places where whether you're a guide or uh you know you're a ranger um it's a place where you can make a living off of your relationship to the mountain. Mm-hmm. And that I've really appreciated uh, having, you know, having a place where I feel like I earn my keep by being outdoors and, um, and being of service. Yeah. It, that, I mean, it's great. I think going mountain climbing is really enjoyable for me, but it's, it's great to have mountain climbing uh, be a community thing that, Longs Peak is obviously important to the park, but it's also important to Estes Park, and it's important to the whole Front Range. And uh, it's it's great to be of service there and be a part of the community. So, mm-hmm. and then the question that we have asked everybody, uh, similar question but slightly bigger picture: Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mountain National Park. What is your time here? Either the park environment itself, or your coworkers, or what it's meant in this time in your life, just kind of, again, that big picture. What is, what does Rocky uh, mean to you? Well, I, <clears throat> I learn this more and more all the time as I spend more time here, but it's, it's a really tight knit community here at the park in Estes park also. And, uh, I think being in this park it, it, for me is a lot been about the relationships I've formed here. And Maybe that's a, a good thing to bring up too is when you're going up on Long's Peak, you're you're definitely becoming part of that community. Um and we're it's a it's a tight knit community and it's a small world and so I think having respect for the people and the places that you're involved with, um, the more time you spend up here and I certainly hope people come back again and again and again. Um the more connected they become to that network. So being courteous, uh, helping people who are having trouble and uh, sharing information mm-hmm. in a positive way, that's that's something I hope everyone takes away from their experience on Long's Peak. Nice. Yeah, watch out for each other out there. Yeah. We're all we're all in it together. You're not alone. And and I feel <laughs> and I, and you see that happen, you know? Yeah. I mean you do see that happen when when things maybe don't even go bad, but if someone's having a hard time 
people check on them. People. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And that's, uh, that's one of the things that I love about out the outdoors and, and, uh, all the different ways you can enjoy it is that it, it really strengthens your connection with other people in a, in a real way, almost like an accelerated way. Yeah. I feel like you can go out on a, on a, on a trip with somebody in one weekend and be closer friends than you would have on, if you'd casually hung out every few, every month for like a year. Yeah. And, uh, I like it. Uh, I like going up there by myself, but, uh, for safety and for enriching the experience, go with a friend, you know, take a friend, take a friend. All right. Well, is there anything else you wanted to? No, 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 you got it. Yeah, it's good for today. All right. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, I guess you're leaving pretty soon, right? Yeah, my season's almost up. Season's almost up. So Ski season's here. Yeah, heck yeah. He's got a big (laughs) smile on his face. You can't see it in the audio, but he's excited. This man loves to ski, I know. (laughs) All right, well, thanks for coming on and uh, filling everybody in, and thanks for your work on on Long's Peak and uh, for for keeping people safe and saving them when they're in trouble. Yeah, and thank thank you, Miles, and... I listen to your podcasts and I, I enjoy them. So, all right. Happy to continue. I'll, ex- I'll accept flattery. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Our next episode will be dot, dot, dot. Who knows? Uh, we're not sure when our next episode will be. We may have some bonus episodes throughout the winter when, uh, when something comes up or the fancy strikes us, but we're not going to be returning to a regular seasonal programming until sometime in 2018. That's scary to say, but uh, sometime in 2018. We are starting on pre-production soon, though, like I said in the intro, so uh, we'll have more great stuff coming to you sometime. For show notes, transcriptions, and to learn more about our show, visit our homepage at go.nps.gov forward slash rmnpod. That's go.nps.gov forward slash rmnpod. The Rocky Mountain National Podcast is a product of Rocky Mountain National Park, one of 417 units of the National Park Service that preserve America's heritage for all, forever. Stay classy, Rocky Rangers. Have a great winter. We'll see you soon.